The Book of Acts is a transitional book. It goes between the Gospels and the Epistles. It was written in an age where miracles were common. We have in Acts 3 an example of a miracle. There were very many miracles at that time, so why is this one chosen to be in this book? First, it was a precursor to Peter's second sermon, and secondly, it was the, it was the cause of the first persecution of the church. In chapter 3, it opens with a multitude of people going to the temple for the Feast of the Harvest. So let's begin our study. The Lord granted his spokesman in the early church to be credited with miracles or miraculous gifts, as documented in 2 Corinthians 2, verse, uh, chapter 12, 2, 12, verse 12, and Hebrews 2, verses 3 to 4. Miracles are not needed today because we can determine by comparing the teaching of anyone who speaks for God with Scripture, which God gave us to do that. This specific healing that was mentioned in, chapter, in Acts 3 was one of many that authenticated the early preachings of the, the apostles since they didn't have scripture to compare it with. Now, not all are documented, but this one shows the impact that they had on others. It was a lead-in to Peter's sermon. Biblical understanding of the apostolic ministry includes a few things. So we're going to look at one. It included uh, the uh, many fraudulent healings at that time. Two, Satan's demonic hosts produced counterfeit healings. Jesus warned us of this in Mark 13:22 and Matthew 7:22 to 23. Third, healings were done by those in close association with the church because if they were not done by them, why was there the fuss? The Acts, that shows up in Acts 9.35. And fourth, Acts records the healings of unbelievers. It prepares the crowd to hear the gospel and authenticates the speakers. So we're going to start with verse 1. Peter and John were frequently seen together. Today they were on their way to the temple. Their meetings were probably held in the temple porticos because there was no real church building at that time. The time? It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The time of the evening sacrifice so that the temple would be really, really crowded. There was a beggar placed at the temple. He was in a very good place to beg. He was at the beautiful gate, and this was a massive, ornately decorated gate at the east entrance to the temple. Definitely a strategic move by him. He wanted to be placed in a place of those trying to impress God and those trying to impress others as they went by. There are five aspects to the miracle of the beggar's healing that are really noteworthy. First, it was unexpected. Verses three and, uh, 4 and 5. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. The second thing is that he was given more than expected. He expected a small amount of money to get him through the day, but he was given much more. He was given something to get him through eternity. Verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, 
but what I do have, I give to you. The third thing was that it was done in the name of Jesus. A name equals the virtue by which we have Christ's character, authority, and power. It is doing what he would do. He, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. We notice next it was instantaneous. It was immediate. This man had never since birth been ever taught to stand, more or less walk. Verse 7, And seizing him by the right hand only, he raised him up, and, he imme and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Next, it's complete. There was no need for an assistance. Nobody had to do anything else. He wound up leaping. Verse 8, With a leap, he stood upright and he began to walk. These are all characteristics to screen all healings that people claim. And if all are met, then there's a result. And these results are, um, one, you get joy to the one who's healed. God wants our joy. And he wants it to be filled, as in John 15, 11. So we read in Acts 8, And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. We also know that praise and worship of God, just showing up, does not mean it's worship. You have to do more. Third thing was that it was a testimony to the people. It gives us a completely different meaning to the word shock and awe. Verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. They were in full amazement. There was no denying what had occurred because this was God's introduction to Peter's sermon. Peter replied. Now we look at the word applied. It's a word often used to mark the beginning of a disclosure. Verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Peter starts by addressing them as God's covenant people. These people knew the important role of miracles in their history, and he asked them why they were surprised since they had watched Jesus perform miracles. The people saw poor, uneducated Galilean fishermen that had no power in themselves. The people, Peter then tells them, them that the powerful name of Jesus Christ is how he did this. He uses five names of Jesus in his message. All of these are with messianic implications. again a little light <laughs> he used the word servant which is verse 13a this was a familiar term used for Messiah especially in Isaiah 52 13 to 53 12 that whole uh, grouping describes the suffering servant he used the word Jesus 13b it's a Hebrew term Yeshua the word, the Lord is salvation. 
Peter confronts them with their sin and holds them accountable for the condemnation of the one that God had glorified. He calls them holy and righteous. This is a messianic title meaning separated to God or holy. Righteousness holds the idea of innocence. He calls them the prince of life, verses 15 to 17. This was the author of something, faith, life. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He tells them that this author of life you crucified, but you were also witnesses to God raising him from the dead back to life. Not only was he alive, but miracles were being done in his name. His healing of the beggar was now proof. Verses 17 and 18 offers them hope now. Paul says they acted in ignorance, the blindness and ignorance of unbelievers. Then he called him Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was a man that died and rose from the dead. God had prophesied this rejection and death by God's chosen people. This reassures Peter's listeners that it was all part of God's plan. God used their actions to fulfill his purpose. The next part of the sermon addresses the questions asked on Acts 3.37. What shall we do? That's a common thing that we do when we read. It's like, okay, what do we do now? Before the good news of the gospel must come the bad news that we are sinners in need of repentance. Throughout history, God's spokesmen have been calling sinners to repentance. Old Testament ministry of the prophets was to bring Israel to repentance. Not much changed in the New Testament because John the Baptist preached repentance, Jesus preached repentance, and Paul also preached repentance. Likewise, Peter, as he did in his first sermon at Pentecost, he preached repentance. He was offering them hope from a hope from the conviction of guilt. He emphasized again, you killed him. That you is a collective you, meaning all sinners, all of us. We are all guilty. We, our sins, put him there. Peter tells them both tells them both now that and he also tells us that it's not too late to repent. In verse 17, he calls them brothers. In so doing, he includes himself in the mix. Repentance. It's a key New Testament term, meaning to change one's mind or to change one's purpose. This is not only a mental change, but a change in behavior. It is a literal turning from one thing to another. In verse 19, Peter asks them to turn or flee turn from sin to God, as they did when they would flee to a city of refuge. This was very well known to them. Israel's problem, so therefore, was not moral. It was intellectual. They lacked repentance, definitely not information. It is in God's design for men to repent. In Luke, we see the parable of the rich man in Hades. It illustrates the sufficiency of the word to cause repentance. God has given all men the evidence they need to arrive at the need for repentance. Those who refuse have no excuse. 
God also uses sorrow to lead men to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 to 10. Sorrow or regret must never be confused with genuine repentance. Judas felt remorse, but he never repented. God uses goodness and kindness as a motivator, but remember he also uses fear of final judgment. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished what the Levitical system could not. It wipes away sin. Verse 19a, he canceled the debt and as a result there was no condemnation. Let's everyone say amen to that. Peter closes with a note of hope. Even though they reject their Messiah, rejected their Messiah, they were still sons of the covenant and therefore heirs to the covenant blessings. God shows his mercy, his grace, and his love by sending the gospel message first to the Jews and then to the Gentile world. But remember, repentance is the key. Having explained the need to repent and turn to God, Peter now wants them to believe in Jesus. Verse 19, so that your sins might be wiped out. Forgiveness, that is what we need. The only real place to find it is in Jesus Christ. Most people carry guilt for what they may or even may not have done. Large loads of guilt. How about you? Do we carry the guilt of things only you know about? Do you carry it like a burden? You add to it day by day, year by year. Guilt, guilt, and more guilt. I'm really good at guilt. Where do you lighten your load? Uh, where do you find forgiveness? Certainly not in this world. The world can judge you. They can pretend to overlook it. But it's not capable of forgiveness. Jesus told a man that his sins were forgiven. And the religious leaders of that time told him that only God could forgive sins. They did not recognize Jesus as God, and so they didn't recognize that he had the right and the power to do that. They may have been wrong, but you have to understand they were theologically correct. Only God can forgive sin. What an inducement. Turn from sin to God. What a relief. Forgiveness lightens our load. Now, if that's not enough, Peter tells them that not only will they be forgiven from their uh, sins and their burdens lightened, lightened but, Jesus, but belief on Jesus produces what he calls times of refreshing that come from the Lord. He talks of the return of Christ, the fulfillment of all that was predicted by the prophets. On that joyous note, we move to chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Okay, didn't get any brighter on the end one, did it? Okay, it says, um, after, now, I read the chapter as a whole, uh, and I, if you read it a whole, as, as a whole, I was really amazed. The Jewish leaders saw a miracle. They couldn't deny that the miracle happened. Then they got angry because the, the apostles were preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? They threw them into jail. They then took them to court. And then ultimately, they let them go uh, due to the fact that the apostles used scripture as their defense. 
Now, letting Peter and John go only energized them. It gave them a spirit-driven passion to proclaim the good news of the gospel, even more than they had before they started. How awesome is our God to provide such a spirit-driven passion. Throughout history, the church has faced persecution. As you see, far from destroying the church, persecution has merely served to purify it and strengthen it. The church father Tertullian stated, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. In today's world, Satan attacks far is, are far more subtle. Satan found that rather attacking the church directly, even though he does do that, he would like to attack our walk rather than our lives. He, founds that it, he finds that it's far more damaging, especially in the eyes of those who are watching us to evaluate the church in general. This is no surprise since Jesus warned us about this fact in John 15, 18-20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world will hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The day may soon come when believers will be physically persecuted, tortured, and even martyred here. This has happened in many other places, but I believe that it soon will be coming here. My question to you is, are you ready for that? Chapter 4 records the first outbreak of persecution against the church. It can be divided in two sections, the first one being the persecuted, persecution detailed and the church's reaction to that. The persecution was detailed in verses 1 to 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Because we all know they don't, didn't like resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. It was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. The apostles' reaction to this can be shown in five ways, and those five different ways are ways for us to handle persecution. Number one, we see that be submissive, verses 5 to 7. Peter and John offered no resistance when arrested. Now remember that submission is not cowardice. Being frightened, Peter went on the offensive. He was not frightened. And that helps when you, it, it just shows that this isn't going to be something that you're going to, um, you know, not be able to handle. Belief that God was in control gave him the chance to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin. These were the ruling body of the nation under the authority of Rome. It was made up of 71 members dominated by the Sadducees. They met in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stone. Interesting visual there. Uh, the Sanhedrin and a large host of others demanded to know by what power or in what name they healed that lame man. Then a name represented authority. 
Wow, that was an opening for Peter. Second thing is be filled with the Holy Spirit, verse, verse 8a. Peter faced them with boldness since he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, and Jesus had told them not to worry about what to say. Yielding to the Spirit's control is the fundamental key to handling persecution because it actually brings you closer to the Lord. Then Peter was aggressive because he seized the opportunity to share the gospel. Think about this. He was sharing the gospel with the Sanhedrin and all the people that were in the court at that time. Huge number of people because it was not only this, the 71, but you had all the important men of the time. You had all the guards. You had all. It was a huge number of people. And so he, in verses 8 to 12, Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to all these people, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to this man, as he pointed out, as to how this man has been weighed, made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Wow. So Peter turned the table on him. Since they had demanded to know by what name and authority they made this man well, he put them on trial instead by proclaiming the truth. One of the biggest barriers the Sanhedrin, uh, of the Sanhedrin's acceptance of Jesus as Messiah was that he didn't prevent his own death. Their conception of this Messiah was a strong political deliverer who would have done that. Peter knew this and used this by turning to the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They had rejected him, but God made him the very cornerstone through his resurrection. There is no one else. Deliverance from sin comes from Jesus. There is no other way. John 14, I 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Today's believers, who believe there is no other way, are often called narrow-minded or intolerant. Christians preach an inclusive Christ in an, an exclusive excuse me. Christians preach an exclusive Christ in an inclusive world. You are either on the narrow road or you're on the broad road. Sadly, many join the Sanhedrin on the broad road that leads to destruction. Peter's plea fell on deaf ears. It's really sad. They realized that the, they were looking at uneducated men. They were impressed by their use of the Old Testament scriptures. The court was amazed at how powerfully these men argued their case, and they began to see a resemblance in their manner. They recognized these two men as, a rebel, uh, as two men who had followed another, another one without formal training, Jesus of Nazareth. They were doing just as he had done, boldly and fearlessly confronting the Jewish leaders with the authority and the power 
name that in the name of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the healed man just stood there in their presence, going, I'm well, here I am. The court had nothing to say because there he stood. So just like the courts of today, guess what they did? They called a recess. And they sent the apostles outside and they said, they conferred among themselves, you know, they called him up to the court thing and they said, this is the court's worst nightmare. Jesus was executed for claiming to be Messiah and then the followers were proclaiming he had risen from the dead and it even performed a miracle to authenticate what they were saying. Now you'd think with all the wisdom that they had in that room at that time, they could come up with something really good. But the best thing they could come up with was to tell him, we don't want you to do it anymore. <laughs> they were telling the spirit-filled apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus. Whoa. Of course, Peter, being Peter, immediately answered, no, we're not going to do that. He appealed to God as the divine judge to tell them, okay, are we to obey God or are we to obey man? Now, there is a dilemma. Peter and John had refused to obey, but again, they had respectfully explained that they were unable to stop preaching and obeying God. The council had no further option. They couldn't tell him to obey them and not God. They were kind of stuck on that. So they just released him. Now, when these... The two who were released, verse 23, tells us they left and went to their brethren, sharing all that had happened. They couldn't wait to tell them. Prosecution, uh, persecution does not divide believers. It draws you together. It gives you a stronger support system. This created real unity in the early church. Having left the Sanhedrin, Peter and John took comfort in the sovereignty of God, the fourth way to help us deal with persecution. They believed he was in control since it was foreseen in the Old Testament. All they had uh, accomplished was to do whatever God's hand and purpose was destined to occur. These are seen in verses 24 and 28. Verses 29 and 31 tell us to desire great boldness. Here we see praise turn to petition. Peter wanted to proclaim God's truth with even more boldness. No intimidation here, boy. The very thing they were told not to do. They were praying. God's answer came quickly. They prayed, and the room they were gathered in was shaken. They were again filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in the boldness prayed for. The Spirit had filled them with power in speaking the truth from God. The church was successful in overcoming its first trial of persecution. No compromise there. They weren't compromising on anything they believed in. Believers drew closer to God and they drew closer to each other. They were filled with the Spirit and they now spoke with boldness. God does use evil intentions of men for his purpose. In verses 32 to 37, it shows the response to the gift of the Spirit as answer to prayer. The church was growing exponentially, so, so much so that the numbers could no longer be counted. The believers shared life. Their shared life showed that they were occupied with ministering to each other. They were now seeing beyond themselves in relationship to Christ. 
preaching the gospel to a lost world. Their priorities were focused on giving witness to the resurrection of Christ. This was a major emphasis in apostolic teaching. These believers were uncompromising. Sadly today, the gospel is frequently stripped of anything deemed offensive. Unbelievers' very existence is an affront to God. So we must risk that affront as a way to let them know the truth. A fellowship characterized by loving unity and evangelistic zeal receives God's blessing. This unity of believers led to sharing with each other in very practical ways. They saw everything as belonging to God. This thinking led to sharing what was actually God's. They realized that everything really belonged to him and they were just caretakers of it. So they shared with others in need, which is seen in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love the word, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Such caring was a powerful testimony to their community. It was voluntary, because if it was mandatory, where would be the testimony? Barnabas gave voluntarily from his heart. The giving was a selfless gift to the church to use as they deemed necessary. Barnabas was a Levite. He came from Cyprus. His name means son of encouragement. His sister's house was the meeting place for the Jerusalem church. How he as a Levite had owned property is not detailed in the scripture or other writings of that time. But Luke doesn't concentrate on that. He concentrates on Barnabas' heart. He gave, he, Barnabas, he gave out of pure selfless love for the simple joy of giving. Now that is truly an example to follow. Using this example of faith to follow, I take you back to Acts 3, verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. It is in the name of Jesus and the faith that comes through him that Barnabas' heart was changed and the lame healed. Have you been saved from the sin crippling eter your eternal existence? If not, I ask you to answer the call. As Peter said, please look up at him like a beggar, but seeing, seeking more than earthly things. God will answer your plea of repentance and say, by your faith, get up and walk. Like a beggar, we all got up, got more than when more than earthly things. We got a life saved and a life turned to God. So, like that beggar, I'm asking you to stand up and walk in him. Let us pray. Father, I ask you that you just shine down the spirit and you fill these women with the spirit of boldness so they can go out and preach the word and give them what is necessary to give them more than just what's here on this earth. As Peter and John gave to that beggar, 
we are asking that you supply us the need. Whatever it is that we need to, to be filled with so that we can do, um, we can portray the strength that we need to be strong Christians and we can walk in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.